Hey guys, welcome to Maceway. Come on in and grab a seat. I know it's uh, kind of some odd weather, nap time right now, but I uh, want to try to get started. And uh, when the bus gets here, they'll, uh, I'm sure, fill up the rest of the room. I don't know what bus that is. It always shows up at about 5.15, but you know. So we're uh, talking about our last chapter of Amos today and uh, kind of talking about renewal and restoration after a lot of judgment. And this is a song that I uh, like in that context, a song about renewal, about time when uh, change is bringing good things to life. It's a Foo Fighters song uh, called Times Like These.
Well, welcome to Emmaus Way, um, seventh Sunday of Epiphany, and apparently old man winter is not going to let go just yet. Uh, there's a certain amount of cruelty, I think, to going from 65, 67, uh, what, a day and a half ago to, I don't know what it is outside, 34 and rainy. Um, so anyways, we're, we're great, uh, it's great to have you with us here tonight. Um, for those of you that are new, we at Emmaus Way are a uh, people who gather because we, the gospel of Christ has captivated our lives um, and the work of Christ in our world, the work of God in our world to reclaim creation, uh, to be about the work of redemption and reconciliation is something that um, has really captured our imaginations and captured our own lives. Um, and we as a community are looking for ways to participate locally in that story that God is writing, uh, the story of redemption, the story of reclaiming uh, God's creation. So. Uh, we gather together on a weekly basis to hear one another uh, interpret text with, uh, together, to hear one another talk, to listen for the voice of God uh, here in Durham, in our midst, um, locally, but also in other things that are going on in people's lives and how we might connect with one another more around that. Um, I've got a couple of announcements. Um, first of all, if you are new with us, there's a sheet out here uh, that's a yellow sheet. It says uh, something like, Welcome to Emmaus Way. And if you are interested in meeting with one of the ministers, either myself, Tim, Amy, or Wade, uh, please, you can write on there, say, hey, I'd like to meet with somebody. There's a gold bowl out there that you can just toss it in. Um, also, our email addresses are available on the back of the sheet that you have, the liturgy sheet that you have for tonight. So feel free to email us if you want to know more. Um, First announcement is coming up this week, uh, we have an Ash Wednesday service that's going to be taking place on Wednesday evening. Now, if you're not familiar with what Ash Wednesday is, Ash, Ash Wednesday is the beginning of the season of Lent in the church calendar. It's a season where we begin to go through the preparation uh, toward Easter, where we begin to prepare ourselves uh, for the resurrection of Christ and for the Passion Week. Um, so we're going to start that off on Wednesday evening. The, uh, the service is going to be at the Jake's house, which is actually just a few blocks up Watts Street. Uh, I always feel like I'm pointing in the wrong direction when I'm here, but just a few blocks up Watts Street. It's where we've had our uh, Labor Day cookouts, uh, Memorial Day kind of after church cookouts. Um, address? 805 Watt Street. It'll be on the website, but we're going to meet there at 7 p.m. We'll gather in close. Uh, we'll do the imposition of the ashes. It'll be a liturgical service. We'll do a little bit of singing. Um, but that will begin kind of as a community, our walk toward uh, Easter Sunday and through Lent. Um, Wade will talk in a little bit more. I'll give him maybe a, a couple of minutes to talk about some of the things we're going to be doing during uh, Lent, but also mainly on kind of Palm Sunday. Um, but keep that in mind. So that's this week, this Wednesday, Ash Wednesday, 7 p.m. at the Jake's house. Uh, we'll be meeting for a service. Um, next week, we'll also be doing our minister's liturgy. Um, a number of you have uh, or met with us last week, and we talked about it and uh, had dinner and uh, talked about what the minister's liturgy is, and a number of you are going to be doing it. Um, there's still availability for those of you that weren't able to make it to the dinner. That's not a prerequisite. Uh, it was just a kind of information session. So if you're still interested in doing that, uh, please email me. My, like I said, my email address is on the back of that. Uh, and we can make sure that you're included in that. We'll be doing that next week during the service. Um, another announcement I have is, uh, I think Denise has an announcement about uh, ABC and the Walkathon. Mm -hmm. So um, Saturday, March 3rd, starting at 9 o'clock, um, Antioch Builds Community is hosting its annual Walkathon to raise money for 
the transitional house for people who have been formerly incarcerated and are trying to get back on their feet, this is a place where they can stay because if you're applying for jobs, you have to have an address. Um, and so it's a lot of fun. The walk starts at 9 at Antioch Baptist Church, <clears throat> and registration is at 8.30. And you can register on the website, which I goofed and sent out the wrong website, but it's AntiochFieldsCommunity.com, not org. You can register there. It's fun. I'm not sure if the Durham Divas are going to be there <laughs> this year or not. That's Durham Senior Citizenship. You're talking about Dale and Wade? Yeah, that's right. But the Durham's chief of police and county sheriff will be there. Great, and Antioch Builds Communities is one of our kind of missional partnership that we're involved with as a community, and so I really encourage you. Um, it, uh, information's on the weekly that came out. Just change the last three letters to com instead of org, right, uh, to reply. <laughs> right. Um, and then Dave Eifert has an announcement for us about, um, I think, finances. Yeah, I just wanted to make a quick finance update. We try to do this every month so folks know where we are. Since it's January, we have a whole, uh, February now, we have a whole one month's worth of data. Uh, but in January, we brought in $6,573. So thanks to everyone for their contributions. That's higher than last January and a lot higher than the January before that. So we feel like we're on a good track um, to, to be where we need to be at the end of the year. But I just want to keep everybody up to date on where we are financially. Thanks. Thanks, Dave. We should also say Dave, too, has kind of taken over the lay leadership of our community. So. Uh, a wonderful gift to us for doing that. Appreciate it, Dave. Temporarily, I'm just filling in for Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're trying to foster some competition here, so maybe you'll better. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to say a prayer for the seventh Sunday of Epiphany, and then um, hand it back to Dale and Wade. Pray with me. O oh Lord, you have taught us that without love, whatever we do is worth nothing. Send your Holy Spirit and pour into our hearts your greatest gift, which is love, the true bond of peace and of all virtue, without which whoever lives is accounted dead for you. Grant this for the sake of your only Son, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Thanks, Dan. Yeah, in terms of uh, Palm Sunday, I wanted to let you guys know uh, we've uh, talked a little bit about this, but just uh, in recap, we're going to do the Stations of the Cross. There are 12 of them, and um, so we'll uh, have a list, and we just would uh, love it if people wanted to sort of bring those to life in whatever way they would be interested in. So that could be as simple as um, a craft, or it could be uh, kind of an object lesson, it could be a photograph, it could be uh, something for people to draw, or... Uh, some writings for people to spend time reading. Um, so we're really not looking for any one thing in particular, but we'd love people uh, with their small groups um, or individually to take some of these stations, and we'll do that as a group uh, together and have that be the bulk of the gathering on Palm Sunday. So we'll talk more about that, but you can kind of start looking uh, at the stations if you'd like, and uh, if there's anything that you've been interested in doing, sharing with Emmaus Way, this would be a great way to do it. As we continue uh, in these songs of preparation, uh, this first song is by a guy named Billy, Grock, uh, Billy Crockett, who I got to know when I was in high school, and um, he's uh, somebody that um, has, uh, he's from Texas, has a studio there. He's been working with uh, Pierce Pettis' uh, daughter, who's doing music these days, but he wrote this song kind of during the height of Reaganomics, and kind of the height of uh, that, that materialistic uh, sort of... Um, 
time period where uh, it was uh, easy to sort of see how this individual materialism was taking over a lot of America. And uh, I think it has a lot to do with sort of our conversation um, in Amos and sort of this hope that we see in this redemptive restoration that's related to land. And this sort of, uh, I think, deconstructs some of our version of how we see land uh, in certain ways. And then uh, the next song is a Woody Guthrie song uh, called This Land is Your Land, and it's from a version that Bruce Springsteen did where he was kind of saying that Woody Guthrie's whole point of the song was not to have a flag-waving kind of uh, America's Great song, but to say this is supposed to be a place that's a land for everyone, and in many ways uh, it probably doesn't live up to that name. So um, that's uh, the next one, This Land is Your Land. But this is uh, 41 Lawnmowers, so feel free to sing along as you catch the chorus or just listen.
From California to the New York Island, from the redwood forest to the Gulf Stream water, yeah, this land was made for you and me. Greetings, everybody. I'm Tim. It's good to see you tonight. Hey, wait, I'm curious. Did Was it Billy Crockett? Did he sing that song in Highland Park? Did he, get a, get a <laughs> he did. He sang that song to a bunch of rich kids in Dallas, yeah. A lot of they poverty. Went, huh? A lot of poverty in Highland Park, if like, I remember there's correctly. More, we have more than two cars for every house, and there's more than <laughs> the two math trees in our yard. Yeah, it's yeah. like, that guy's math is terrible. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, that's, um, I'd like to have seen some, uh, that's probably pre-YouTube, but I would love to have seen a YouTube of that, that song. <laughs> he did have a mullet, so, you know, that, that, you know, that yeah. made the song all the better. There's something about the name Billy Crockett that might require to you mullet. to have yeah, a mullet, exactly. so uh, yeah. uh, we're not going to ask any pointed questions tonight of who had a mullet uh, other than Jim Thomas. I've seen some, no. <laughs> but hey, it's good to see everybody tonight. Um, as is our custom, I want to give you a moment to stand up and greet each other. If you're sitting beside somebody that you don't know, uh, introduce yourself. Otherwise, uh, offer them the peace of Christ. Wade, uh, really excellent job tonight of, as, as we do most of the times with our songs of preparation. You've introduced the themes of the text tonight. We've been kind of sitting in those already, and so uh, excited about jumping into Amos 9. But please stand up, greet each other, offer each other the peace of Christ. So just a quick question. How many of you guys know the name Jeremy Lynn? Does that ring a bell, like to a few of you? So the, um, the NBA, the professional basketball is not watched in my house and but through the years there's been an occasion where I might have called home uh, to, to Mimi with college basketball game on saying uh, you know set the DVR Tar Heels are playing at nine or something like that but it's not often and this happened on a voice message uh, a couple of days ago where uh, Mimi called in and said you know I think the Knicks are playing uh, if you want to set the DVR we can get some highlights of Jerry so Jeremy Lynn is this the the somebody can tell the story better than me, um, is this kid from Harvard who's been cut like two or three times. He's, uh, he's, he is uh, from Taiwan, is that correct? I think so. And he's, uh, he, you know, he just kind of, they threw him out on a basketball court about three weeks ago, and he has just been unbelievable. And, and the story, I mean, they were, they were doing a feature on him today on, on one of the news channels, and there were just people walking up and down the streets in uh, Manhattan with his number and his jersey on. The first time he saw people wearing his jersey, he thought, oh, they must have, like, made it themselves. He couldn't even imagine that the Knicks would have, like, mass-produced his jersey. And, and there's been, like, hysteria in Taiwan watching the games because he's kind of everybody's kind of feel-good story. This guy that uh, is nice, articulate. They asked him what a big wild night for him was. He said, well, you know, after a really big game, I like to go back to the apartment and 
play a little Call of Duty with my brothers. Or I mean, you know, it's just a, a, a kind of a really interesting story. And I would suggest that maybe the reason that Jeremy Lin is a good story for us is that there's so many not good stories out there. I mean, I mean we could make a list. I mean, you know, I, I could wake up in the, in the morning and be nervous about nuclear proliferation, uh, global warming, uh, mass inequity in our society, uh, global terrorism, the racism that results from global terror. I mean, the list just goes on and on. You can bum yourself out realistically uh, within five minutes of awaking every day. But the kind of the Jeremy Lin story is this bit of kind of dramatic good news, something good existing in a, in a culture where we struggle at times to see good things. Now, we've been tracking as a community, and I've just been so excited about the comments and the thoughts and the kind of the reading that this community has done with the prophetic book of Amos, which is a challenging book. It's a, it's a powerful book. You know, we've talked about prophecy being social commentary. That was the primary way that it functioned in biblical times, is the prophet looked at the covenant that the people made with God and commented on how it was going. Um, but Amos's book is one that is nine chapters and ten verses, beautifully, poetically. Somebody, maybe it was Mark Williams, who said it's, it's more like a folk song than anything else, and it really is like a great folk song. But those first nine chapters and ten verses really have one significant point, and that that is that Israel, the northern kingdom, uh, is going to go into exile because of their failure to keep the covenant. And there's not a lot of good ways to spin that in a positive way, but at the end of Amos, and this is not always the case with prophetic books, many of them have long chapters of portraits of God's redemption and mercy and where it all heads. But the way the book of Amos was written, there's one oracle, the last five verses of the book, that reverse this trend. Uh, it doesn't reverse the exile, but it looks beyond the exile. And that's where we are today as we kind of complete the book of Amos. And so uh, if I could, could I... Um, uh, ask any of you, somebody to read those last five verses on the handout uh, for all of us to hear it together. In that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins. And will rebuild it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Edom. And all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, will do these things. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the one who plows, and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills, and I will bring my people Israel back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. So that's the good news that comes at the end of Amos' book. Now, if you're honest, you would probably say, and you are honest, you'd probably say the good news there is a little, it's a little obscure for us. I mean, we like wine, but land dripping with wine, well, we've got total wine to cover that. If we've got ever a shortage around here, we can get that. Reapers, plowers, treading, 
it, it sounds like a lot of work that you have to do if you just didn't do well in school or something like that, or restoring fallen shelters and rebuilding broken walls. Well, I mean, you can tune into HGTV and watch that happen all day long in 30-minute or one-hour intervals. Uh, planting gardens and eating their fruit, uh, that sounds pretty good, but we've got a farmer's market that kind of covers those things. Um, so in some ways, this kind of prophecy of something good happening doesn't necessarily strike our culture as as something big and as you know we might want there a verse to say hey uh, a global recession with exceeding justice will occur economic justice uh, the end of warfare and there are verses that talk about that but in some ways um, this beautiful portrait of land is something that we might take for granted and we might have wanted Amos to say could you have done something hard God or something that we've been waiting on for thousands of years but what we see here in this closing oracle is all these images of land and and Wade did such a good job of introducing the notion of land to us in the music tonight because I don't I, now I grew up on a farm so the, the kind of the land thing strikes me a little bit because I had a grandfather who farmed kind of we were on kind of forty acres and I, we, you know we're the typical grandkids living on an outlier lot that was bought from the farm and he rented land and so land was you know part of our life but I actually was a bit. Um, too, uh, I was born a bit too late to actually really help on the farm. My older cousins did. So I have a little bit of that, but I would suggest that we live in a, a culture of property rather than land. So we don't think about our assets in terms of, you know, uh, you know what kind, you know, like I'm, I'm not going to ask Dave, though it'd be kind of fun, you know, Dave, you're getting ready to graduate, get that master's degree. What kind of land have you procured going? You know, that's not the normal question that we would ask each other. But property does mean something to us. And in some ways, when we think about um, maybe blessing, or abundance, and these are all images of abundance, we tend to think in terms of kind of capital, what we own as, as what makes us abundant people. For example, we, we would love to have cultural capital, you know, things like degrees and qualifications and certifications, and I, I'm not sure, Denise, I'm not sure that you became a better teacher when you were national board certified. I mean, that, like that day didn't change a whole lot other than the fact that you've worked really really hard for a long time and you've taught for 15 years but so accreditation those things like that don't necessarily make us better people but it's cultural capital it's an affirmation of what we we do and of course we love economic capital we think in terms of money and investments and all of those things and social capital has become a huge factor in our world I mean is it like the the real influential person is the person with a million uh, Twitter followers or Facebook friends or you know I, I guess uh, what was Kim Kardashian's last count is like 5.5 million Twitter followers. So I guess she has great social capital. So we think about capital more as what makes our lives abundant uh, rather than land. But what we've got to do in reading this text is put ourselves in the minds and the eyes and the hearts of the Israelites who land meant everything for them. Land for them as a culture meant that they had shelter. They had livelihood. In, in their day, either you protected your land 
or you lost your land, and your land was the source of livelihood for almost everyone. And in the covenant that God made with Israel, land was the representation of faithfulness and blessing in that covenant. So if they were faithful people, God blessed them with the land that was promised to them. So you can imagine hearing Amos say this, and I, I, if they hadn't entirely tuned him out already, but uh, and, and they would have struggled with this being after the exile, but this portrait of an abundant land literally just seeping with wine and produce would have been for them the absolute best of news. Now, I would suggest, and we need to wrestle tonight a little bit with this promise of God. Was that promise a promise only for Israel? Was it a promise that was fulfilled after Israel returned from exile a couple hundred years later? Or is it something that has life for us and meaning for us as the people who are struggling to follow God in this place and in this time? And I would suggest that it does. But one of the things I want to kind of warm us up to is this idea that we have to struggle to hear this as good news. We have to frame this uh, because hearing good news can be difficult for us. I'll give you an example of uh, something I was reading for my classes this week. Um, I have a professor who uh, wrote a study on um, some school, a school about 30, 40 miles north of here, probably like toward Person County. Uh, he call, calls it Rougemont School, and there's a community called Rougemont, but I don't think it was the actual name of the school. But he tells this story that during desegregation, which was obviously a great thing, something we would look at as, as uh, uh, maybe an advance of God's justice. And Andrew told us a great story about living in South Africa during that. So we would accept that as really good news. But it was interesting, in a lot of um, poorer communities or rural communities uh, all around the South, when, when it desegregated, you might have two white schools, or, and two black schools. In this case, there was a white school and a black school in the area. And what was traditional was the assumption, and it's, it's out of like good-heartedness, was that, that African-American people have been oppressed. They have been marginalized. They have been made poor. They have lived under um, legalized racism. So surely, because of those things, the schools that they produced couldn't be any good. So you can imagine kind of how the bureaucracy went was that the, the, in every these counties, uh, even though the socioeconomics might have even been higher in the African-American school, the white school was kept, the black school was closed, and the kids were kind of merged together. And so he was doing a study on Rougemont and, and realized that there was this, it was amazing that actually schooling uh, in that community, uh, though desegregation was the right thing to do, they just put the kids in the wrong school, uh, dropped dramatically. And, and his point was that there were several things that was present in this black school that he studied, and one was this continuity of place. People really had this sense of this is our place. Uh, there was a continuity of people. There was this sense that we are among uh, a people of people who have bonded together. For example, and those of you who teach, you can kind of imagine what this was like. This was what discipline looked like in Rougemont School. Uh, and I think it was maybe probably K to 12, is let's say you're having a little trouble with the kids at Millbright Brook and somebody's gotten in your face. What you did is you walked home with the kid <laughs> at the end of school and sat down and had tea with the parent and said, you know, 
little Phil is just driving me bananas. I'm having trouble fashioning an educational experience with Phil doing this. And, and mom or grandmom or the whole community or maybe the preacher sat down and said, you know what, we're going to help you with Phil. <laughs> and, and, and you can bet that you got help with Phil. Uh, that was kind of the portrait of, of this sense of people. And there was this strong sense of mission in that place. So they had a sense of place. They had a sense of peoplehood. They had a sense of mission. And interestingly, they also had this as part of kind of an exilic understanding. And this is maybe one of the few things that's good about being oppressed. Is when you're oppressed, you know to some degree that this land is not your land. <laughs> that you're kind of living on this space and somebody can change a law and take what you have. Um, and so there's this, this is why the sense of people in place and mission was so incredibly strong for this school that it actually declined after desegregation. And, and so I give us that illustration simply to say this, that at times we're not crafted. We're, we're, it's, it's hard for us to see the good. It's hard for us to see blessing. It's hard for us to see God's kingdom unfolding around us. Just like in well-meaning expectation, somebody came in and said, we've got two schools in this part of either Northern Durham or Person County. Surely we're keeping the better school. And nobody even said, you know what? If we really looked more carefully, we would have moved the white kids into this school because it's the one that was really functioning pretty well. So what about this promise of property. What does it mean, uh, 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 or excuse me, this promise of, of land to Israel, what does it mean to us in our very propertied world? And I think what we're being told here is that God's kingdom has the opportunity to give us a, a, a sense of place, that God's kingdom can be our place. Now, I would suggest that might be really good news for us because we live in a a incredibly rooted, uh, disrooted type of country. Like, for example, let's take this poll. How many people have moved in the last year here? How many people have moved in the last two years? I'll keep your hands up. Three years. Four years. How many people have not moved in the last four years in this by far, I mean, we live in a culture where place is not something that's often attached to geography for us. So this sense that God's kingdom offers place is tr tremendously good news. What about a sense of peoplehood? Like, for example, if you were to like look at your social media and just like your Facebook page or, or whatever, wouldn't it be possible that you'd probably see layers and layers and layers of friends? There are these high school friends. There's some college friends. There's these people I met when I was out. There's these friends of friends. I mean, we, we, we have so many communities that we may suggest that we have no community because we have so many communities. But here's this idea, this promise that God's kingdom gives us a sense of being a people. I would suggest that that's one of the beautiful things about this community. As I look around, I mean, there's a tremendous sense of closeness in this community. I think when Sarah Kate did her survey last year, we found that Emmaus Way people tended to see other Emmaus Way people four to five times a week. 
whether that's a, a small group, hanging out, going to have a drink or a cup of coffee, or, uh, or just bumping into each other in town. So that's something that's really beautiful. But in another sense, you look around the room, we're not required to be best friends in the room. I mean, I like most of you, not Josh so much, but the, a lot of you I like a lot. Uh, sounds like a Bilbo Baggins speech. You know, but we, we, we're not required to be friends uh, but there's a sense of peoplehood that makes that kind of filial attraction less important. That, that, that's not what you would describe as this kind of table community. It's a community that sh- shares a table, and we also share a sense of mission. So this is what we're being told is the good news of Amos's, of Amos's declaration, is that God's kingdom is not going to be deterred. This exile fits into the category of God setting things to right so that God's kingdom can continue to unfold. Dan said it tonight. We say this all the time in a man's way. Is one of the reasons that we come here is a sense of hopefulness, a sense of expectation, the sense of belief that God is, despite what's wrong, continuing to heal, continuing to mend, continuing to rebuild and restore and, and the best thing about God doing that is God has said, I will do it collaboratively. In other words, I won't do it and tell you about it and you can sing songs and be happy. I will expect you to participate in those things. And your participation, and I'm not sure I fully understand the theology of this, but your participation will matter. So in some ways, this promise of an unfolding kingdom and living in that kingdom is probably the good news that, that we need because it roots us. In a place. It roots us in a purpose, a mission. It roots us in an identity. Now, here's the tricky part. As a community, we're going to start a journey next week on Wednesday with Ash Wednesday. We're going to step into the season of Lent, the season of of preparation and preparation for Easter. And one of the things that I, I like what we do every week is via Palm Sunday and, um, and Maundy Thursday, uh, we step into the death of Christ, not just the resurrection of Christ. Because I think the resurrection of Christ can be incredibly trivial if we don't in some way step through death to resurrection, so to speak. So it's a powerful journey for us. But we'll gather for Easter like we do every year. It's one of our, our most exciting, I would call it a worship party. We, we've in the past had champagne and sweet bread and, uh, and music that celebrates this, uh, this sense of God's apocalyptic presence in our world. And we eat together and we, we gather at a table. But always the undergirding question is, Do we really accept this as our good news? Do we really accept that this is what God is doing? So in some ways, reading this text of Amos, the trick isn't understanding it. The the trick of it is embracing it as a people. And so I I have some questions for us tonight just to kind of force us to live in this text. Um, One of the things that that we kind of set up was this idea of, of property versus this idea of land. And, and this vision that was given to Israel was a vision of land, a, a, a corporate vision. It wasn't a personal vision that said, you know, gosh, if you guys would be a little more faithful, uh, you'd have a little more to call your own. Instead, it's something much bigger than that. Um, but one of the things that I, is a part of my life is the things that I do call my own at times drive me crazy. 
I would suggest that I use about 1.7% of the technological capability that I own. I would suggest that, and, and this is, you know, living in a house where, uh, you know, we need, we, our dishwasher's been out for three months. And, and washing dishes really isn't that difficult to do. It's kind of fun because we can make the kids do it. That's one of the, the advantages of having teenagers is I'm not washing any dishes. Um, but, but like just being so busy and so frustrated that like there's this space in the kitchen that someone should be able to like, take an evening and go buy a dishwasher, but it really just hasn't happened in the last three months. And the, 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 the staff is getting a little frustrated around the house. Uh, I, can, I can assure you of that. But I, the idea is that some of the things we call property, and, 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 and I'm talking about not just physical or financial property, but the game for social meaning or cultural capital. Those are, are burdens. Those can be tremendous burdens. And in some ways, I think this prophecy of Isaiah is a prophecy of liberation, of freedom. It's saying your meaning in life can come from a sense of people and place and mission in God's kingdom rather than how it's perpetually defined around us. Now, do you remember that kind of that kind of youth group campfire kind of thing? You know, it's the last night of camp, and you know what's going to happen is you know Andy's going to make a big bonfire, and Anita's going to give a really good talk, and then she's going to say, you know, uh, everybody write down a really heinous sin that you've done. You know, Amanda's smirking because she'd write like the halfway sin, but she'd look over to the side and see what her neighbor had done that was really bad. You know, but you know, we you'd do that, and you'd, you'd kind of bring it to the bonfire, and you'd burn it up, and you know, it was you know it was at least. Things burned. It was, that was kind of what happened. Uh, some of you have had that experience. So I wanted to just kind of have a little bit of an imaginary bonfire. I don't want to burn anything tonight. But if we were to embrace God's kingdom, this sense of people, place, and mission as presented in Amos, what are some things? I'm talking about specific things. What are things that we might struggle to give up or to not let it be the meaning maker in our life that we would maybe be able to jettison if we really embraced God's kingdom? So you're on the spot for that. If you had, what would be some things that you would kind of maybe throw in an imaginary bonfire in the middle of the room that might give you a sense of liberation? Something that would be freeing to you living with this vision of, quote-unquote, as I've defined it, land, rather than this sense of property, the way our culture defines it. And it might be one of those 41 lawnmowers. I don't know what it would be. But what, what would you throw in the fire? What burdens you that could be unburdened by God's kingdom? By the way, that's a very on-the-spot question, isn't it? Yeah, Jim. This is perhaps going too far, but I might throw our house in. Yeah? <laughs> uh, we'll come live with you, Jen. <laughs> Occupy Reality Center with Jenny and the Thomases. Um, but, you know, houses set a pace for consumption that, you know, once you've got the... the uh, this three-dimensional space, you you have to fill it with stuff, and you want to fill it with nice stuff, and then that stuff wears down. You got to you know refill it. It just goes on and on and on forever, and it, it can determine the pace of a whole, well, at least the material aspects of a whole life. And let me frame that a little bit. I know a lot of you know Jim and Gail a lot, but some don't. Jim and Gail have this beautiful house that they have 
utterly committed to others. They have an apartment in the bottom of their house that they have either given out or rented that supports Africa Rising, which is one of our partnerships here. It's beautiful. And I would suggest if I was doing a, like a little secret spy on Jim and Gail calendar, you probably have guests in that home 100 days out of 365 a year, if not more. Do you think that's low or high? There's a lot of people. In fact, I've rarely knocked on your door where you guys were the first one to come to the door. It's usually some house guest. Oh, you're looking for Gail. You know? And so this is somebody who has taken property and lived with a radical sense of hospitality. But you're also saying that property sometimes defines what we need or what we have. Like, I feel kind of bad not having a dishwasher because there's like this spot in the kitchen. I feel like there should be one there. Something else that burdens you, that God's kingdom might declare as a burden and say you're free of that to some degree or, or have opportunity to be free. For me, it would be my parents' health care. Because I think um, that um, I feel like to be a good daughter, I need to be good stewards of their health. And so I, I own that. And it's really not mine to own and that you feel that success is keeping them alive, you know, forever and ever and ever, um, and that death is a failure. So I would say that for you. Yeah, and, and part of our sense of property, one of our property points is our bodies. We believe that these bodies of ours belong so incredibly ours that we better be in shape and we better live forever. Even though, as Dan's advisor would say uh, over at Duke, no one gets out of this life alive. Everybody's going to die. But we live as if that's not the case. Yeah, absolutely. Something else that's a burden. I think it's easy to be disdainful of wanting to do well in your job for financial success and wanting to do strict motive to make more money. But one thing I've been struggling with is wanting to do well at my job and say you're doing well or, you know, because I like what I do or whatever, which is good to a point, but then you get to where that really does start to take over and you start to value, you know, in my case, doing research and academic success over other things and kind of losing sight of the act why you're actually doing that job. So kind of focus on that. Yeah, I wouldn't call us an economically affluent community. I actually call us an incredibly generous community, wouldn't you say so, uh, Mr. This is an incredibly sacrificial community. But where we are affluent is our education and our expectations and the things that we feel like we need to do with those things. Wade, I'll put you on the spot. You've talked about this often. Wade went to Stanford, which is not a junior college, one of the harder places to get into in the world. And we've had, for some reason, a bunch of friends who went to Stanford. And I have Stanford friends who are CEOs of companies that feel like they're incredible failures. There's a, there's a sense of burden that if you've made that cut and you've, is that true? You've experienced those four years, you should have invented something. Yeah, the Stanford Magazine, a lot of us who graduated joke about how we don't read the Stanford Magazine anymore because you either have to be, you know, doing something incredible, winning a Nobel Peace Prize, doing something, or else you pretty much, you know, don't need to bother calling yourself a grad. And so it's just one of those things where that worldview can be so oppressive. And, and they did all that while they were playing Ultimate Frisbee, too. You know, like, <laughs> with one hand and while they were playing Ultimate Frisbee. I just designed a, a cure for cancer. I don't know how I did that. 
But um, I think, yeah, it absolutely can be a burden. Wade tells the story of reaching for pencils and a, a dorm mate's, like, dresser, and he pulls open the drawer, and there's, like, four gold medals. And she just says, you know, move the gold medals over. I think there's some pens under there. And one of your classmates invented Pandora. And, you know, I mean, this is, this is the kind of thing, this is the world that we live in, but to some degree it's scripting what it means to have meaning. And, and, and I don't know if Vanessa's figured this out, though Vanessa's really smart. Most of us have figured this out, that our income often does not relate to our value. Uh, any of you who teach know that. I mean, it just, it doesn't work that way. And so it, it, there's a burden in that. Other things that you would find that could be radically reshaped, and I'm not saying this is easy, but might be radically reshaped by this sense of, of land, property, place, and mission that comes from, from, from Amos. Yeah, Gail. Um, well, this kind of goes along with the Stanford thing, but I think perfectionism is something that a lot of people carry as a burden that's not placed there by God, that, that he knows well that we're broken and imperfect people, and yet we, we want to achieve in all these different areas of our lives rather than um, relaxing in him. I was joking. We're back on um, on colleges again. This is, I was staying at a friend's house a few years ago, and the cover it was I think it was the Stanford Magazine was this woman who was in her late forties, uh, was a, a, a Olympic runner, and the article was how she's raised four kids, uh, coaches all of their cross country teams, uh, still maintains a viable career, and then the subtext is you know somebody said how do you get it done, and she said well I, I outsource most things, but uh, but I. I was looking at this and I commented because I'd seen her on the cover of Runner's World and my friend Allison looked at it and said, I hate that woman. I mean, that woman represents to me just everything that I'm not going to be. And this is a friend of mine who runs marathons and, you know, it's, it's, it's part of the world we live in. Absolutely. Now let's reverse the question. What does when you've done it? And I think my friends here, you've done this a lot. When you've embraced God's kingdom as your sense of, of, of purpose. It's provided you with a sense of identity or meaning or a sense of peoplehood. What have been some of the experiences of kingdom life that for you would say, I don't have an empirical measure of God's kingdom. I do have a sense of it unfolding around me and my being a part of it. What, what would be your sense of those things? What has made you feel like you were part of God's kingdom? Um, so Africa Rising supports 14 different organizations. One of them is a, we could call it a city of 10,000 people who were displaced by riots following the presidential um, election in Kenya a couple of years ago. And they live on a hillside in tents that are made of plastic stretched across whatever. Now, in this space here, there will probably be 50 of them. Last year, we visited them and walked amongst those tents and met, met those people and met a we saw the different businesses that they had set up to um, make a living. You know, one woman had, a, uh, had gotten solar panels and was charging a car battery, and from that, 
she was charging about 30 cell phones at the time that we walked through there. She had a cell phone charging business. And there are you know, 30 or 40 different businesses all throughout. And so in this place where people are living under plastic, where there are lots of leaks should it rain, they still had ingenuity. They still had community. They were still working together to try to get back onto the land that was rightfully theirs. And in that situation, I felt like I was an instrument of God's kingdom because what, what we were doing in Africa Rising was bringing together the resources of other organizations to work with them, to bring them to their rightful places. Mm -hmm. It's interesting too, reading some of the research that I'm reading um, would, would be a, a kind of a here parallel of that. Uh, this is, I think, what they missed with African-American schools is they didn't consider the African-American church that surrounded those schools. And that church gave this incredible sense of exilic meaning, meaning that we are exiles uh, in this culture. It, it's like when we step into Ash Wednesday, we're saying we're living in a different story than the story in the calendar that we're in. And that's one of those examples of watching a truly exilic people finding their sense of meaning and place um, in, a, in, in you know, a powerful way. Thanks, Jim. Anybody else? I mean, what, how do you sense that you are part of God's kingdom movement? One thing I'd say is... Um, Sort of uh, with the exilic thing, there's been a couple times where I've been uh, away from my like Christian communities for a month at a time um, in other countries and such, and uh, and a lot of times feeling in those times a bit of, of sort of that exile feeling of of not you know seeing the kingdom around, um, but in a number of those times it's been really cool seeing God um, answer that by bringing people into that space. And um, uh, one time it happened in, um, in uh, Cambodia. I just ran into a guy on a bus and, um, and then ran into him later the same day and just was able to like really have an encouraging conversation and, and be uh, united with a brother in Christ who was like over there doing stuff. Um, but just in the midst of that um, you know, feeling away from, uh, from the church, um, being brought back even for a day um, was was really beautiful, and realizing that um, despite being in those times of desert or exile, whatever, that there still is that hope and restoration, and even you know, even for uh, for a couple hours, being able to taste that again is really beautiful. Thanks, Dean. That's great. Anybody else? I was going to say, Tim, just um, being with kids and. Lots of ways but a lot of days it's just I can I have a chance to really see like there's just so much opportunity to, to instill like the love and the values and the discipline and all the things that um, that we want to instill in our kids and just to I could just see sometimes you know this is this is really important. This is what this is what I'm supposed to be doing right now, and and it does feel like this is the work that God has me doing, and and I'm glad that I get to be there. And you know, and then there's you know not so you know I don't have to 
put them somewhere where you know I could be home with them and give them hugs when they fall down and you know time out and then you put in time out and learn valuable things and so sometimes I mean overall I mean most of the time you can't you remember but it, it is I think a really fulfilling thing to feel like that's also an important part of of you know God's kingdom to to raise up children you know. And, you know, kids have, like, the most incredible vision of the world. They see things that we have forgotten to see. I remember we used to drive on the way to kindergarten up one exit on 40 from North Carolina 54 to 15501, two and three-quarters miles. And almost without failing, those two and three-quarters miles, we would count trucks because Keenan was really interested in trucks. And I, I'm, I'm not that interested in trucks. But I can tell you empirically that there's a, an average of about 100 trucks that you pass from that. You know, there's this sense of, and, and with a sense of wonder, that there's a truck. And there's a front loader. You know, and, and my brain is like, I don't care what a front loader is. But you're so excited about it. Maybe I have not considered the concept of front loader enough. Uh, and, and, and that might be a really amazing thing. Um, I think of there's this great scene in, um, don't go see the movie, it's, but read the book, Tom Wolfe's Bonfire of the Vanities. It's incredible, he, he this incredible book of the 80s. And he, he does this scene of a Manhattan dinner party. And he has this incredible classification of the women who are at the Manhattan dinner party. And, uh, he, and I can tell you about that later. But at one point he goes, the one person that wasn't invited to this party was mom. And, 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 of course, a lot of the women at the party were moms, but it was uh, it distancing the, uh, from that life that was being described at this, at this party, so to speak. And so, in many ways, you're living, Lynn, a life that um, is, is somewhat countercultural. Some would say it's repetitiveness. You don't accomplish a whole lot. But, but, but if you step into a different reality, you're, you have an opportunity that, that would be easily missed. That's a great example. One last shot on this. Not one last shot. We're talking about this forever, but I definitely have a sense of it in my in my classroom every day. And have been very overtaken by the fact that I get the chance every day to do very restorative work um, with my kids. I have a lot of kids that come from very broken places. Um, and not only trying to help them with their reading skills or their writing skills, but also to give them a sense of maybe a place, um, you're talking about land versus property, but a place um, that is freely caring and, and loving um, towards them that they may not um, have a sense of otherwise. And, and so um, I definitely appreciate and love that every day I get to see them um, and to learn a little bit more of their stories and where they're coming from. I'm really seeing them as as children of God, um, no matter what you know, kind of situations they're coming from. Yeah, it's an amazing opportunity. Now, we're probably going to buy a dishwasher and continue to live in the propertyed world that we live in, right? And we all are part of that life. But here's the, here's the challenge. This is the challenge of being a people together is to step across the two questions that I've asked you tonight. One is, in what way does the way things are done, do they burden us? You know, and, and I mean, I, I could tell you, I probably spend an hour a day 
worried about what college Keenan is going to get to into next year. And, and a lot of that's driven by a sense of status and meaning and all the things that I was raised in. So I'm not saying we, we, we quit those burdens. Those burdens are very real with us. And in fact, we live in the in-between space of being in that reality. But on the other hand, this kingdom offers opportunity for us that in some ways liberates us from some of the burdens and reconstitutes our lives. And I want to remind you that in some ways, that is our work. That's our work as a people, is that we come, almost every week we do a song of confession. And, and in some ways, for me, I can tell you what the confession typically is. Now, the confession probably should be, I shouldn't have gone by cookout and got that milkshake on the way home from church, but I did it anyway. And that, that would be an appropriate confession. But often the confession for me that comes up in the music that we do is this sense of being shaped by a reality that I don't think is that important whether that's my kid's achievement or um, how well I do in a class or something that we're doing as a community. I, 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 that's a very appropriate confession. But then the absolution for me often is this sense of possibility. And that's our work as a people, is when we gather and we share the peace, when we gather at the table and, and connect with each other, we hug, we talk, we share stories. A lot of that's this opportunity to be reminded that our peoplehood is in the kingdom. Our mission and our place is in the kingdom and that we can unburden ourselves with some of those issues and then we can imagine together. That's one of the things that we're inviting you to do every week in this community is to imagine together. What if Dan and I were a part of an imagining meeting? What if pastors in this community really said, we're going to do something about the level of violence that happens in certain communities? That's an imagining act. You have those imaginations, and I would encourage you to share those imaginations with each other. The, 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 the um, partnerships of this community, be it Reality or Africa Rising or ABC or uh, Durham Can, have come out of people's imaginations and specifically people's imaginations in this community saying we should be connected with that. There's something redemptive happening in, in those places and we should participate in them. So don't forget that you're being asked to not only confess but to imagine every week. And I also would encourage you, and I'm so thankful that many of you have done this, that your stories of embedding yourself in God's kingdom, I would love to hear those stories. That would be better than any text dialogue that I come up with any week is for you to share those stories as a community because those are stories of significant liberation that we all need to hear. So I think Wade is going to lead us now into confession and absolution and perhaps those questions will frame that for us uh, this evening. Yeah, thanks, Tim. I was thinking about this um, song we're going to do for confession, Where the Streets Have No Name. If you look at the, uh, the chorus part, it says, We're still building and then burning down love. Building and burning down love. But when I go there, I go there with you. That's all I can do. I think this is a picture of uh, when the earth will be renewed, new heaven and new earth. When Jesus was asked, you know, what the most important commandment was, he said all the law, all the prophets can be summed up in two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. And I think, 
I think we saw that in this uh, picture of Amos of God saying that it's your love that I want to see. I want to see your compassion and care. And I think um, that's the part of the, the vision of this land, this place where love and care and compassion would have the day.
Hear this as your absolution tonight. It's a song about just God's great mercy and care for us, that He really does love us. He wants to be the one who brings us to the land. We don't have to do that. He's going to be the one who gives us the land, gives us the opportunity to join Him in His work. There's a wideness in God's mercy cannot find on my own. He keeps His fire burning to melt this heart of stone. Keeps me aching with the yearning. Keeps me glad to have been caught in the reckless raging fury that they call the love of God. Let's try that verse again. There's a wideness. There's a wideness in God's mercy cannot find on my own. He keeps His fire burning to melt this heart of stone. Keeps me aching with the yearning. Keeps me glad to have been caught in the reckless raging fury that they call the love of God. Now I've seen no band of angels, but I've heard the soldiers' songs. Love hangs over them like a banner, with them love leads them on. To the battle, to the journey, and it's never gonna stop. Ever widening their mercies and the fury of His love. the Lord a door has opened all hell could never close here I'm tested and made worthy tossed about and lifted up in the reckless raging fury that they call the love of God in the reckless raging fury that they call the love of God finally made it there. 
Whew. After eight and a half chapters of Amos beating us over the head with his pinko commie message of redistribution, we finally made it to the place where we get our toys back, right? God has taken them away for eight and a half chapters to teach us how to share, and finally now we get them all back. You see, there's a tendency, I think, for us to misread this chapter, to misread this message here at the end of Amos. We tend to read it as a good news message that comes to us to say, here, here is the kingdom. It is all the possessions you can acquire for yourself. That in our culture of individualism and independence, that the good news, really what it can boil down to is simply the idea that if I can acquire enough things to place around myself, I'll be big enough that somebody actually has to recognize who I am. And therefore, I might just not have to live my life in complete obscurity. We tend to think that the message at the end here is not a message of place, but a message of possession. But we're reminded as we come to the table that that is not, in fact, the message at the end of Amos. It's not the message that, okay, now have your toys back, just share them. But the message is here that God carves out a perpetual place for us to meet one another in friendship. God carves out a place where God meets us in friendship and we, as the people of God, can gather taking the time to know one another and to find ourselves known. That against that tide of independence and individualism, there is a space cut out here in the middle of the congregation that can reorder our whole lives together. That the kingdom of God actually breaks in in this space. We're reminded on the night that Jesus was given over to suffering and death that he took bread and he broke it for his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. He did that sharing with them the grace of God poured out in his person, given to them in their lives for them to live the life of that new kingdom. At the same time, or afterwards, he took wine, he blessed it, giving thanks, poured it out for them and said, this is the blood of the new covenant, the new contract, or that's not even a good word, the new order that God promises to live with us in peace, giving us a place where we are known by God. Tonight, as we come to the table at the end of the book of Amos, we find that we're invited into something greater, something greater than possessions, than renown, than anything we might accomplish in our lives. We're actually invited into a place where we can share in God's friendship and in God's kingdom. I invite you now to the table to be partakers of that kingdom, to take your time to sit in this place, to know one another as you break bread and, and pour wine or juice for one another, and to rest in that kingdom.
At Emmaus Way, we celebrate an open table, meaning all of you are invited to come. We break bread for one another, handing it to one another, saying, the body of Christ broken for you. And we pour wine or juice for one another, saying, the blood of Christ shed for you. We do that tonight in recognition that this is the place God carves out for new life to begin. When we're done with communion, we'll invite you back for a benediction. Come now to the table. Amen. guys, would you uh, join me as we uh, sing our song of benediction? Take a look at your lyrics. Uh, this song, Show Me the River, that we've done before. Uh, but it's a great song of land coming back after exile. And uh, the idea of home. Home being love. So grab uh, your lyrics and sing along with us. You guys know this one. See the blood on my head, the lines on my face. 
back on the fight Gonna steal back my life like a thief in the night Show me the river leads to my home Back to the one that I love Show me the wind that constantly blows And I will fly Thanks, everybody, for being here tonight. Drive home safely. I haven't looked through the window to see if there's any snow or ice falling, uh, but uh, do drive so home safely tonight. And do know that you are in the, brace, in the embrace of a loving and a merciful God. Go in peace.